I had not written any songs while I was sick. I really, that was a place that I kind of kept under cover for whatever reason. And so now I'm blossoming and I'm coming back and it feels really good. It's time for Backstage Chats with Women in Music, where the stories and voices of female music makers inspire women like you to be dreamers, to be rule breakers, and to unleash your inner rock star. Podcasting from Austin, Texas, the live music capital of the world, here's your host, Thea Wood. While Jan Bozarth has seen much success in her music career, you won't see her headlining festivals or getting into Twitter wars with public personalities. You see, Jan is a living testament to how creating and licensing music for corporate products and brands can provide a successful career in the arts. Back in the day, she may have been called a sellout. Today, she's considered a business-minded artist. Jan is also a breast cancer survivor. And in this episode, we salute all women and their loved ones who are fighting or have fought this disease. Now, let's start the chat. Welcome to Backstage Chats with Women in Music. I'm your host, Thea Wood. Today, we're taking a look at songwriter, producer, author, who literally lives in the house that Barbie built. She's a prime example of how music makers do not have to book sold-out arena tours or land a top 40 Billboard album to be successful in the music business. Please welcome the incredibly talented dream maker, Jan Bozarth. Thank you, Jan, for being here today. Hello, Thea. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. Well, you know, we always start off our episodes with what we call the shakedown, and it is a set of questions that we ask all of our special guests like you, Jan. So we're just going to start off with those. Are you ready for it? Ready. All right. The first question of the shakedown is, who was your first concert? Well, I had to do a lot of research to figure that out because I had all my dates wrong, but the concert that really I feel was the first rock-ish concert for me was in... When I was 15 years old, I broke into the press conference for Judy Garland and the Supremes. I lied and said I worked for the school newspaper, and they let me in, and I was befriended by Gil Askey, who was the longtime manager for the Supremes, who stayed friends with me my whole life. And he let me in, me and my friend, to the opening of the Astrodome in Houston, Texas. And it was Diana Ross and the Supremes in the height of their times. And, of course, Judy Garland, who was sort of a longtime hero for me. Excellent. Next question. What was the first album you bought with your own money? Okay, another one I had to deep dig deep for. But uh, the first album I bought with my own money was the Beach Boys' Surfer Girl. And, of course, it was during the time when the Beatles were popular and the Rolling Stones. But I was in love with the Beach Boys. Which artist or band is in heavy rotation on your playlist right now? Sarah Borealis, uh, her new album, Amidst the Chaos, is, uh, I play it probably four times a day now. I'm in love with her as a writer and as a performer, as a soulful human being. I just love her. Next question. Which woman has had the most influence on your career? As a writer and as a musician, Joni Mitchell, hands down. I'm sure many people say that, but I was a Joni fan when I was very young. I learned to play guitar with open tunings back in 1966 or 67. Uh, so Joni is my hero as a writer and really as an overall, overall artist. She's the first multi-hyphenate artist I ever knew. You know, she's a painter and a wordsmith and an instrumentalist and a singer. So she's my 
She's mine. All around creative. Very much so. If you could have dinner with any woman, dead or alive, who would it be? My toss-up really was between Joni and Anais Nin, Anais Nin, who was the poet that I fell in love with. So really as a, a writer, a songwriter, my first love was poetry as a young girl. And I learned the beauty of uh, mastering words. So both Joni and Anais is, uh, are both masters of the words, and they were women. You know, I wanted to read what women had to say in a time when there weren't as many women writing like that. Of course, Anais, well, both Joni and Anais were uh, truthful about their emotional life when they wrote. And like you said, most writers were men or they were women who had to assume pen names in order to get published. And even then it was few and far between because the ladies were expected just to get married and become homemakers and do their thing at home. And they didn't get as much opportunity as the men did. Okay, our last question. What is one life goal you'd like to accomplish before climbing that golden stairway to heaven? I have a weird one for music, I guess. I definitely would like to write the theme song for a Disney movie. I have always liked the big ballads and big ballads that touch the heartstrings of not just adults, but adults and children. So that really encompasses my whole songwriting career. And of course, I hope I get to do that. Okay, Disney, did you hear that? I can get you two in touch. Please just let me know. I think that's a fabulous. And, you know, and it, we're going to touch upon that answer a little more deeply because of your career. Uh, let's set the stage here for our listeners. You've written and produced the music for six book series, 15 interactive games, and four musicals, most of which are all leaning toward teen and preteen girls. Our audience might be intimately familiar with the 1990s CD-ROM game Barbie Generation Girl Got a Groove featuring your music. So the question I have for you today is how did you come by writing music for Mattel? I got a job in 1998 being the music director for a new girls gaming company. It was called Girl Games. It was one of the very first companies to ever make girls games and initially I was hired to be the music director but within about six months I became the head of creative for the whole company and one of our business partners was Mattel we did a deal with them early on they made an investment in the company and not only did we create original content for girls but we also did their major brands which included Barbie but I didn't really do a lot of Barbie at first I did uh, music for Clueless the movie and for Sabrina the Teenage Witch which was a big um, television show for kids at that point, for girls. And so I really got into this groove of not only producing interactive media and all that comes with that, but also writing the music for that. And in those days, you didn't just do a little soundtrack to whatever the action was in the, in the, the game or the movie. You actually had a separate track that was like an album of songs. So we got to write whole songs. And um, that's really where I honed my chops. And I, I was going so fast in that world and writing so much. And I wrote with my son, Shane, who we still write together after all these years. And we'd hole up in a little studio out back of our house and just knock out poppy girl songs. And it was really fun. And they paid us really well to do that. But it was a new genre of uh, licensing for, for songwriters. And many songwriters didn't even know how to price 
the sale, you know, if you had a full buyout, or how to go get a job like that. There weren't that many. And then mine was very specialized in, in that it was for girls. And there was also, uh, people think, oh, well, they're just popping out all of these cutesy teen, you know, teeny bop things. But there's really a lot of research that went into that. Am I right? That's so true. In fact, I give Mattel full credit for uh, allowing me to be a part of their research machine. They have a a huge amount of um, money invested in researching kids' products in their their place in El Segundo. So they really became my biggest client. You know, after Girl Games, I went on to produce for them directly as an outside producer and a writer and wrote music. And, you know, for anybody that thinks that um, working for a client like that and writing music is a sellout, I really feel that um, you might not understand what the distribution possibilities are. So one one CD that Shane and I created three songs for, they asked us to create just anything we wanted. They didn't give us any direction in terms of the songwriting, and it was distributed at Disney World, and they distributed about three or four million of them to kids, and we were fully credited on that and paid to do that. So um, there were a lot of opportunities like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you mentioned the sellout opportunity or sellout term. And certainly during the 70s and 80s, we heard that term a lot. Um, it was said in a negative way that artists were allowing to the corporate companies to pay them and use their, their art to sell products or services. And uh, it was really frowned down upon. And now I'm seeing studies where young people don't even know what the word sellout means, which makes me laugh. Um, and, and of course, on top of that, now we've got publishing companies who are hosting what we call uh, sync camps, where they're telling songwriters, hey, this is the mood that we want to create, or this is the product or ser- type of product or service we want to sell write something that, you know, pertains to that. So obviously it's being looked at as a very legitimate business opportunity on all sides. Why do you think that that shift has been so dramatic from this very negative frowned upon thing to something that is now becoming an industry standard or opportunity? Well, first of all, in the olden days, in the beginning of time of music creation, Uh, Perhaps it was true that if you wrote a jingle for a brand or an ad agency, you were more or less told what to do as a writer. And no no music writer or any kind of writer wants to do that. The sellout really was in, I want to write what I want to write, and I don't want anybody paying me money to do what they want me to do. Of course, there's gray zones even within that. But as time has passed, I think that, uh, first of all, most artists didn't understand music publishing. There's always been money in owning your own songs. There are many songwriters still in this world that you don't know their names that have written huge hits and made lots of money. I don't personally think that's a sellout. I think that's a way to make a living and a very legitimate way. It always has been. But what has changed, I think, in the last 10, 15 years is the technology uh, the way we distribute music, the way we distribute records or albums, those don't really exist anymore. You know, we're into a, a Spotify world and, you know, a world where downloads and streaming and all of that makes the selling of people's albums and songs different, the making money from that. So all of a sudden turn to music publishing and owning your own tracks and working 
and writing music or letting companies use your music. And most people really will not try not to associate their music with anything that is um, not something they believe in. So, the, I mean, the sellout really comes in that little narrow scope. But, you know, with the Barbie stuff and with the game music and the things that we did for young girls, nobody that I can remember ever told us what to write. We never had the situation where we went, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. You know, that just doesn't jive with me. That never happened to me. So I feel very fortunate. I also have many friends that are musicians and writers that have made complete livings out of syncing their songs in some way, either to movies or TV sh shows or ads. That's a big business for writers. Mm -hmm. So um, I think things have changed enough now where I can see where people wouldn't really know what the word sellout means. Well, and, and you brought up technology being a factor in that shift. Do you think that uh, the availability of being able to record, produce, uh, and distribute through technological means has offered more opportunities for women in music? Absolutely, especially women who are willing to learn the tools. If you don't have to go, I mean, I think if you want to talk about sellout, for women in music, the best position you could ever be in is to know how to do it yourself and not have to ask permission from a producer or, you know, count the, the time on the clock because you've only got $1,000 to spend to produce an album. Your, your strongest position you could ever be in is to know the technology. And I actually can say that I am proud of the fact that I rode the technology and got myself in places where I could sell my music and I could control the situation by being the producer or the person controlling the dollars. So um, I think for women who know the tools and they're willing to learn things and, and control their own creative output, that's the ideal scenario. And that kind of segues nicely into a prime example of this, which is a new song that we're going to listen to here in a second called True Love Train by SO3. And that would be you, Bitsy Rice, and Lisa Richards. And so let's take a moment with the audience to listen to that, and then we're going to have a little chat about it. Come on home, girl. you a ticket on the true love train. Okay, so now that we've heard True Love Train, let's talk a little bit about how the three of you got together and decided to record this song. Okay, so first let me say that song is such an anomaly stylistically from everything else I was writing, and for, for Lisa and Bitsy as well. Uh, Bitsy used to be in the music publishing business. We met 
uh, she's also an incredible instrumentalist and a, and a writer herself. And Lisa Richards is Australian. She's gone back to Australia now, but she was living in Austin. And we decided that these three girls would get together and try to songwrite together and see what happened. And we were completely different styles. All of us had different skill sets. But one of the things that we decided to do early on, which speaks to what we were talking about earlier, is that we wanted to do everything. We wanted to play all the instruments, write the songs, record the songs. We learned pro, pro Tools. I mean, there was a learning curve. We had a studio at Bitsy's house, and we learned Pro Tools, and we produced everything. And we wrote everything, and we played everything and sang everything. So we were this little machine. SO3 stands for Symphony of Three. Yeah, so we were, we were such a little tight group, and uh, we would often just throw down ideas, and then the three of us would work on them live together. And then uh, True Love Train actually started with a song I had written the lyrics to. I hadn't written a, a tune or anything, and I brought that to the group, and it was called Raining Roses. And Raining Roses was about girlfriends who comfort you when you've had a bad breakup, basically. So I put that in front of the group, and I don't know how it became this sort of rockabilly, bluegrass concoction and the three-part harmonies, but it was super fun to do. And uh, Mark Hallman, who has Congress House Studios here in Austin, did the guitar parts and uh, helped us pull that piece together at the end. But I think that really it is the joy of writing songs. And we had all the parts of it covered and it was really fun. Just for our audiences, FYI, there will be a link to this song in our show notes so that everybody can get a nice little listen to it. So please go to backstagechats.com and look up the Jan Bozarth episode. We are talking with her right now. And uh, we just finished chatting about uh, True Love Train, which was uh, one of her recent uh, compositions and performances with her group SO3. I want to jump back a little bit, a few years, back to 2014. Um, That was an extremely pivotal time for you, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, I had been working on the Fairy Godmother Academy, which was my six-book series, book series for girls. Um, I had a publishing deal. I had six books out. And I'd moved out to Los Angeles to do some deal-making for various things for that. And I came back for Christmas and found out I had stage three breast cancer. And so I never went back to L.A. I stayed in Austin and I basically had to shut down all operations and do my treatments. Um, I did about two years of treatment in Austin and then I went to the Mayo Clinic for a while, too. I did not do well in the treatment stage. I was allergic to everything and had a lot of side effects, but. Um, I am now in remission, and I'm back, and I've been writing again. And so it really was, it was a a hard time, of course, and it was hard to shut down the machine for a while. But there were so many good things that have come of it. Of course, I live to tell, right? So that's the best thing that came of it. But also slowing down and becoming contemplative and uh, deciding what is important the essence of my life, which of course, in my, my case is always my family. My kids took care of me, um, has been very valuable for me. And how did all of this combined, because it's such a monumental experience for you and your family and everyone involved, how did this affect your, uh, approach to music or your, your creativity in general, because you have such a broad, list of things that you do outside of music as well. How did, how did all of this affect that? 
Well, I can say that while I was very sick, it shut everything down. I, I didn't really do much out in the world, of course, but I kept a journal, um, which I've done my whole life, and uh, I named the journal, which is also very common for me. It's called Girl on the Moon because <laughs> I was in a completely uncharted territory for myself. And so the little bits that started to come back energetically and uh, spiritually, the joy that started back in my life a couple of years into that, that experience began with writing. I was really compelled to decide what to write next and uh, what part of my past creative experience I wanted to pull forward into the new times. You know, once I knew I was going to live, which was, you know, a big one, I really got to craft what I was going to do next. I had, I got to decide consciously. I had time to decide. I wasn't in some swirl of something I'd already already created. So I started writing a new book series for older girls that is the follow-on series to the Fairy Godmother Academy. Uh, but I wanted to write for teens, and so it's young adult fiction. I've written two of the books of a new series now. I also started writing a nonfiction book that was based on a lot of the creative time I had over the last 20 years called Dreamaroo, and it's a process. Um, I've never written a nonfiction book before, so this was just, you know, a different side of my brain. But Dreamaroo now has kind of taken off a life of its own and taken on a life of its own, and I'll, I will have a nonfiction book out for that. It's based on a lifetime of lucid dreaming and also working with people in the creative industry. I often would mentor people, and that starts with young people and going to adults that needed to find themselves. Mm -hmm. And I kept notes. I learned how to assess what makes people go for their dreams and, you know, what helps them do that. And so I've written a book about that, and hopefully that will be a whole new thing for me. So, I mean, really, the time of being sick, of course, now that I'm out of it, I can say this, but it was a very fruitful time for me. I got really clear on what I wanted in the world and what I didn't want in the world and what I was willing to do going forward. And and also, I'm, you know, now at a part, a time of my life age-wise that I have to be very specific about what mm -hmm. I give my time and energy to. So, really, it's a happy time for me. And I spent the last two and a half years as I got stronger writing, and I'm now getting ready to do the harvest. Tell us about the harvest. Well, the harvest will be three books and a whole new series of creative products that come from those those writings. And I've, if you look around in my room now where we're doing this interview, you see all my instruments out. When I moved to this house, I realized that while I was sick, I had my guitar in the case under my bed, which is no bueno. Oh. I took all the instruments out. I have them out where I can grab them at a moment's notice when I get inspired. So I'm starting to write music again. I had not written any songs while I was sick. I really, that was a place that I kind of kept under cover for whatever reason. And so now I'm blossoming and I'm coming back and it feels really good. Well, first of all, we're so glad that you're here with us today. <laughs> After that experience, I cannot imagine um, how impactful that was for you and difficult. Uh, and I'm thrilled to hear that you're writing again, music again. And of course, books, the shift to books that has happened along the way here. And also, you speak a lot about dreaming. And I think that 
maybe when you're confronting your mortality and trying to understand what's next or what could happen next, um, there are so many things in life that beat the dreams out of us. I mean, really, I mean, whether it's a health problem or work or responsibilities or money woes or whatever it is, um, thank you so much for having a focus on dreams because that's what gives us hope for moving forward. Absolutely. When I was a kid in those days, people would say, oh, you're such a dreamer. Like, it's a bad thing. It's a negative thing. And the world really doesn't uh, value, up to now, the world has not valued the process of dreaming. And I, I divide dreaming into the night dream, the lucid, lucid dreaming, and the daydreams, which are active imagination. If you're in the creative field, if you're writing or creating any kind of products, you are actively imagining a lot. And it falls into the realm of innovation and uh, activating dreams and learning how to use that time productively is my specialty. I'm an aficionado. I've been doing it my whole life. And I've helped other people do it as well. So I felt like this was a good time for that. The world has turned to meet me. And I feel that that, you know, that's a lifetime of learning, really. And I probably wouldn't have done Dreamaroo the way I'm doing it now. Dreamaroo is the company in the name of the book about dreaming. Uh, I wouldn't have done it before now, it, professionally. I was doing it under the, under the everything else I was doing. It was kind of like my own personal study. And now the world, I think, is ready for that. When you talk about all this experience, how each thing has led up to where you are now, what advice would you give women of any age who are interested in pursuing music, looking at it from a either, you know, a sync or branded slash commercial uh, endeavor versus necessarily trying to be a rock star out there on tour and doing all of that, uh, two very different approaches to the music world. Uh, what advice would you give those women who are looking at getting their foot in the door and, and becoming successful at such an approach to music? First of all, I would say creatively break down the walls. Don't let somebody tell you that your sound or your way is not the right way. There are many ways, and you have to professionally believe that the p potential for a career in music is a much broader, uh, has, has broader possibilities than just being a singer-songwriter or a big rock star performer or, you know, selling a million dollars worth of songs or CDs. There's a huge world of possibility out there that involves music. And music now, you know, there's many, many more people who are uh, multi-hyphenates. They're artists, producer, writer, guitarist, singer. They're, you know, that's more acceptable now. So your universe just got bigger. And to be too narrowly focused is the death of any artist or human being, really. And so I would say do what you love and what you feel you want to do. Research the world of possibilities. Don't, tell, don't take no for an answer. Absolutely. That's fantastic advice. I, I applaud and appreciate it. And also I want to let people who are listening know that there are samples of what Jan does 
on her website and you can actually just click and listen to the embedded sounds of things that she has that are for sale or examples of things that have been for sale. And you can get an idea of how she's working it and what she has available on her website. And those, those links will be in again, the episode show notes at backstagechats.com. As we wrap up, I wanted to let you know, I brought you a little something. It's one of our new stickers. They're super fancy foil stickers that say backstage chats with women in music and they kind of look like a CD, don't they? They kind of do. I thought they were. I thought it was a mini CD. I was so excited. I'm still excited though. This is awesome and I know exactly where I'm going to put it. Oh good, cuz I'm telling everybody laptops, mu- musical yeah. instruments, iPhones, whatever it is that you want to put it on, we would be thrilled to have it. And I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to our folks here. We are a nonprofit organization. We are so happy to be showing the work that women are doing in all facets of the music industry to our audience members. And it's like we always say to people, why do we love ladies like you? Because you remind us to be dreamers, to be rule breakers, and to unleash our inner rock star. So here we are. We're wrapping up today with Jan Bozarth, and we would like to thank everybody for listening to this episode with us, and we'll see you in the next one. Hit the subscribe button and never miss an episode of Backstage Chats with Women in Music. This podcast is a production of the Backstage Chats Foundation, a nonprofit that is on a mission to eliminate gender disparity in the music industry by amplifying the voices and careers of women in music. You can make a difference by donating to the cause. Visit backstagechats.com and click the donate button today. This episode was produced by Alison Holland.